we really look at what we do with a tremendous sense of responsibility. When you're at service to a customer and you truly believe in what you're delivering as a set of products and services, meaning you believe that they're valuable, you believe that they're transformational, you believe after you get to know like the needs of the customer and a typical pursuit that this thing is really, really good for them, you have a great sense of responsibility to, to sell well and to hopefully win that deal because that decision could literally, at least in our space, set that company to a different direction. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. Let's talk about high-performance partnering. What does it look like? How do you benchmark it? And how can you apply it with hyper-focus? to achieve your most outstanding results. In this podcast, we focus on core principles, foundationally how leaders can lead differently during this time, and what the best in the business are doing to achieve their greatest results. For this episode of the podcast, I've got a real treat in store for you. I got to spend time with a dear friend and business leader who has built a business on successful partnering, not just with one technology giant, but with two. Tony Savoyan, the CEO of SADA Systems. Tony and I got to record this session in person at the Channel Reseller News Next Gen Conference last month in California. It was my first in-person event in almost two years, so it was great to see some familiar faces and friends in person. And in the case of Tony, spend time with someone I know, respect, and have worked with for many years. In this interview, we'll discuss not only the principles of successful partnering, but the decisions he has made to accelerate his growth and trajectory. If you're a business leader, this is a fascinating example of successful business execution to over $1 billion in bookings with one of those tech giants. Some of what Tony has to say here might be a bit controversial, especially to some of my friends at Microsoft as he ultimately sold his Microsoft practice to double down on his work with Google. But he explains his rationale for doing so in this interview, and it clearly has worked to his benefit. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed spending time with this leader and dear friend, Tony Savoyan. Thank you, Tony, for joining us. Good to be back. It's good to be in your hometown, or your, your home basin anyway. That's How's right. that? We That's call right. it the home basin. That's fair. For those who don't know me, Vince Menzione. Described my career as 30 years of successful business transformations, four business transformations, nine years as GM at Microsoft, host of the Ultimate Guide to Partnering, and founder and CEO of Ultimate Partnerships. And uh, delighted to have a good friend with me here today. I'll let him introduce himself. Tony Savoyan, CEO of SADA System. Tony? Thank you, Vince. Good to be back. 2017, a lot has changed. So our company just celebrated in August being 21 years old. So we can drink now. So I've been doing the same thing for a very, very long time. I've evolved and 
reinvented the company many, many times. But at this point, we are 510 people in US and Canada, a couple of offices abroad as well, because I think that we'll talk about how that became important over time. In 2017, we still had both a vibrant Microsoft cloud-focused business and a Google cloud-focused business. And the big change between then and now is, is in March of 2019, so two and a half years ago, we divested and sold the Microsoft business unit to focus completely on the Google business. At the time of the divestiture, about 80 people left with that deal. What remained was about 160 folks, almost all in LA, I would say. It was very, still very headquartered heavy organization. So 160, two and a half years ago, 510 now. And I think the pandemic has been both challenging and an opportunity. I think we've yeah. probably added 250 people in the period of the pandemic, roughly. We both have a podcast. True story. Someone asked me earlier today, why did you start a podcast? When I left Microsoft, podcasts were not even a thing at the time, really. They were kind of just evolving. And I knew intuitively as GM at Microsoft that organizations struggled working with the tech giant. There were only a few, a handful, in fact, and we'll talk about one of them, that really understood how to work with the tech giant, how to navigate and understood the basic operating principles of what made successful partnerships. And so I founded Ultimate Guide Partnering around that set of principles and the fact that organizations struggled working within the four walls of a Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Salesforce, you name it, and to bring leaders from the industry to share best practices of what made successful partnerships invited the vendors to come talk about how to navigate, how to work more successfully, what they looked for in partnerships, and then also interview great organizations that had gotten it right. In fact, episode three, only my second interview was with Tony Savoyan of Sada Systems back in early 2017. We followed that up with this on stage version. I think it was episode 37, where Skate to Where the Puck is, is going. And then we're back here today. And Tony's been on when I relaunched the podcast back last year at a really critical time in our world. And we have seen this world has evolved dramatically in the last 20 months, this time of intense and rapid transformation that we've never seen before in our lives. So talk a little bit about Cloud and Clear before we get really rolling at the conversation. Well, all right. So let's talk about the genesis of your podcast and then my podcast. So I was walking outside of my office, like pacing, talking to you. You're about to leave Microsoft. You're like, how am I going to market this business? Like, how am I going to create like this? And you talk about this podcast idea. I was like, you got to do it. Like, you have to do a podcast. There's not one like it. It's really its own lane. The world needs to know what, everything you've learned at Microsoft, working with partners. And then after we divested the Microsoft business, I was like, Vince has done really well with his podcast. Now I want to launch a podcast. And amongst other things, I think focusing on one thing created an opportunity to be a hyper-focused podcast creator too that talked about an ecosystem that was not well understood, that there was not a lot of other, any other podcasts I could find that would focus on Google Cloud as an ecosystem. There was a GCP podcast by Google that was very technical. And I think Deloitte had like a cloud podcast that was super generic. And I was like, oh, we could just pick our lane telling very specific stories about customers' transformations and in cloud, we can have Google leaders there. We can have our leaders talk about certain things. Well, now that emphasis is more, probably more customers. We try to tell as many customer stories as we can, but it's been great. I think episode 111 comes out tomorrow. Yeah, we were weekly for the first 100 episodes and we went every two weeks. I think next year we're going to go weekly again because we have so much yeah. content. But episode 111 is about MakerBot's journey of moving off of AWS to GCP in their own words, like saving 30% and 
Like it's great. Like we love telling customer stories because I think that's for us as partners, that's how we're credentialized. We're credentialized strictly in what our customers are willing to say than the accolades we get from Google. Not that that's bad. We love those accolades, but it's much more important to have customers tell, tell the story. And you have a fascinating story. I've gotten to know you over the years. I consider you a good friend, great friend. And I've gotten to know both your parents as well. This evolution of this company, I've gotten to watch it and witness it with you. And as you know, I am convicted around the art and science of partnering. And I believe that partnerships, I've talked about this, this evolution we've seen in business, right? We've seen this rapid transformation. CEOs in every industry and in every geography say that their businesses will be unrecognizable in five years. We've seen this transformation. Every company is becoming a technology company, right? And we in the tech sector have an opportunity and obligation to lead during this time. And I consider you not only a friend, but a leader in this industry. And I mean that sincerely. I am convicted around a set of operating principles around what makes successful partnerships. And I think you know some of them. I actually talk about you in my presentations around what makes successful partnerships. And I interview a lot of great leaders as guests on the podcast that come, corporate vice presidents from Microsoft and Google and other organizations, yourself, other great business leaders, CEOs of organizations that have evolved, that have grown their businesses. I'm also a very big proponent and I'm very convicted, especially coming out after COVID and bringing the podcast back when the world was on fire, that we in the tech sector also have this opportunity to lift all voices and that diversity is a big component of that. Absolutely. And that this Critical. is still very much a white male dominated industry. And there are a lot of great leaders that voices need to be heard. And I, as you know, if you look at representation on my podcast, a lot of great leaders of various walks of life come to my podcast to tell their story. I want to spend some time here on what I believe principles of what makes successful partnerships, because I believe whether you did this consciously or not, over the course of the span of the, I've seen this trajectory from a small MSP to a top partner for Microsoft and Google, to somebody who's really crushing it in the ecosystem right now as an organization. And you set an example for all of the organizations out there in this ecosystem that aspire to be more as leaders and to grow their organizations. You've done some things really successfully well. I talk about the level one, two, three, four, and five, level five being the visionary partnership across my benchmarking. I want to start off with the concept of growth mindset. I believe that growth mindset, forward-leaning mindset, infinite mindset, we've heard it described several different ways. It wraps around empathy. It wraps around some other things. But that mindset around partnering is just critical success. What do you espouse in terms of mindset for you and the business? I think that empathy is a good word to kind of explain the baseline mindset of, I think, everyone at my company. Definitely aspire to create a culture within the company that transcends org structure and titles and everything else. Like, who cares? Our website says certain things and the executive team, like, let's say, is ideally aligned with those things. But the downstream teams who are working with customers every day don't feel and behave a certain way according to our culture. But we really look at what we do as with a tremendous sense of responsibility. When you're at service to a customer and you truly believe in what you're delivering as a set of products and services, meaning you believe that they're valuable, you believe that they're transformational, you believe after you get to know like the needs of the customer and a typical pursuit that this thing is really, really good for them, you have a great sense of responsibility to, to sell well and to hopefully win that deal. Because 
that decision could literally, at least in our space, set that company to a different direction. If they choose this path and they're leaned in and they follow our guidance and we listen to them well, this contract that they're signing, this obligation that they're signing, this journey that they're signing up for, that has the potential to make a massive amount of impact to the company, but also to that person who signed that SOW. We truly believe that the work we're doing is useful and valuable and transformational. We want to win, not for the revenue. Yeah, the revenue is great. It's important. Bookings are important. Backlogs are important. Consumption is important. If we didn't believe in what we're selling, like I couldn't be in that kind of business. And I think it'd be very, very hard for me. And then because our whole business model is designed to spend a lot of time in pre-sales, it's just very, very time-consuming to prove to a customer to do something they've never done. And almost every customer that we win has never bought or deployed Google technology. Like Google's not the incumbent. We have to convince everyone to like take a risk, either real or perceived, to both have the potential to greatly improve their, their business, but also to go in a completely different direction. Because if you're a decision maker and you value job security more than everything else, you just renew the EA and call it a day, right? I think it takes the level of pre-sales effort that's both very structured and very hands-on. Every customer wants to know that the technology will work and work in the way that they need it to work, whatever the outcome is that they want to achieve technically, that the financials make sense, meaning the ROI is something we can prove, and that we can make them feel very, very comfortable about the change management process that's involved in their journey, whether it's Google Workspace or GCP or something else. It's both, we have to get what we call a tech win. So prove that BigQuery is faster than Redshift. Okay, then prove that you can both cost contain this thing and you can do it more cheaply than their current solution and prove that their engineers will be able to run it eventually. We have to prove all those things, right? In the process, very, very heavy pre-sales. But when we win in our model, 90% of the time we're delivering professional services. We've sold the technology that goes along with it. We have an opportunity to truly in the SaaS and consumption world, have that customer for life if we win. And we depend on that. We spend all this time and money doing pre-sales work, sometimes funded by Google, sometimes not. We don't make money in that part at all. Like we're generally losing money there. Is that when we win, we have to keep that customer for life. And then so that contract that they sign, which includes services, but also significant investment in licensing and consumption, because of our model in the resale component of what we do in MSP, that is also a massive obligation. That win that we get is not like shipping some boxes as a distributor or even delivering an EA if you're an LSP, like you deliver that enterprise agreement, you're like, peace, I'll talk to you in three years. When we deliver it, we got to get that thing to, to be used and consumed and adopted so that they pay us because we owe that money to Google regardless. Like if they don't consume, we got to pay the bill anyway, right? Like it's, an, it's a back-to-back obligation. So what that does is create, I believe, incentives around the world creates all this incentive for us to just surround this customer with all the love and support and delivery and technical account management and customer success and enterprise support and project management, all these things to make sure that they successfully consume this obligation that they signed both ways. And I think that because of the way that the incentives work, the values are important and they're sort of like why we get up in the morning and how we do the things we do. But it's the behavior of the company is also guaranteed by the business model. Because if we don't do those things, if we don't make our customers successful, if we make sure that person who signed this thing, like they not only have to like keep their job, but hopefully get promoted if we do it right. 
like it's built into the business model. We all have an opportunity to design our business however we want. And I think if you participate existentially in a successful outcome in the work that you do, it's a very different set of incentives and drivers than how it used to be, which is like you bought software or hardware from this company and then some other company deployed it. Like the person who sold it is done pretty much. And then the person deploying it is like, they don't care how fast you deploy it. Your growth mindset, your forward-leaning mindset led to you breaking the model. Because what you yes. were saying earlier, and others that I pick up on it because of my years of experience at Microsoft, is that you stayed in your swim lane. You did that one thing, but you didn't do all the other things. You didn't wrap around the customer. And at SADA, you've taken a different approach. And it's actually the approach, candidly, that when I was at Microsoft as a GM, we were trying to get partners to do, but it was hard because we had such a legacy infrastructure. We had large, large account resellers or LSPs or whatever they're called today, scale partners mm -hmm. that did billions and billions of dollars of transactions. We had small MSPs over here that were delivering great services to customers, very hands-on touchy. And then we had middle ground SIs and we had ISVs. And you've kind of done it all, which I think is really astounding. We're going to talk a little bit more about how you've evolved your model. But I feel like your growth mindset really led you to do that. I want to touch on this next point, though, because I think they tie, these two tie together. The other was around extreme commitment. When I talk about extreme commitment, and I found I've worked with the best of the best, including you, I've worked with other organizations, I find that the best of the best do commitment better than the rest. And what I mean by commitment, and I've got your picture up there when I talk about it, is really that from the CEO on down to the organization, they get partnership. They understand intuitively that the whole organization has to buy in. It ties in the growth mindset too, but they have to buy into it. And everybody from the executive team to the board to the selling floor has, can tell the same story. Yeah. And you talk to me about that because you, you seem to do that better than just about anybody I know. So there's the core partnership. It used to be that even when we had a Google and Microsoft business, we just had two. And it was just cloud stuff. We were not going to be great at the Microsoft on-premise stuff. And we decided that deliberately, right? And there was a lot of complexity. But in, even in this world of just Google, like you're dancing with elephants. You are dancing with an elephant. <laughs> I don't care how big we get. We are still much smaller than, than Google. And I think that mapping the stakeholders within all the people that we work with, and they're different and they have different drivers. Like there's a field sales organization. And by the way, in each region, they operate differently. So we have to know what the you know, lead, regional stakeholders need. And within the field, there's different roles within the field. There's the CEs and the partner salespeople and then the field salespeople and the field sales managers. And figuring out how they make money is very, very important. When we were on stage here four years ago, you had the Microsoft practice, you had the Google practice, and we talked about the firewall and how elegantly you learned to dance with the two elephants, I guess is the way I would put it. But you made a fundamental decision which was good for the business, obviously is showing off in the numbers, is to make double down on the Google relationship. When you did that, I talk about shared vision. It seems to me there was a seminal point, a pivot point there that happened. How did Google enter the room with you? And what was that shared vision for success that you put a stake in the ground and said, this is what we're going to go do? It was actually a result of several things, I think, compounded over time. I think, again, between 2009 and 2019, when we had both in the cloud and successful, even then we had completely firewalled sales and delivery organizations. So field knew if we were brought into a Microsoft deal, the sales team they work with at SADA 
only sells Microsoft stuff. The engineers that they're going to work with only did Microsoft stuff. And so we had this as well as you can do, which even that's still a higher standard than almost every other SI or GSI. They don't really even firewall to the degree that we did back then. But it did become like two, I felt like I was running two businesses. And there was definitely some pressure. And I always felt like we got a disproportionate amount of scrutiny for having two, two practices, even though like everyone else did, like had 10. And we're like, but I don't know why. I guess it's but the benefits of, you know, being close with leadership has the downside of being under the microscope. So we're That's under right. the microscope. So the Microsoft ecosystem is simply massive. I mean, it is massive. The Google ecosystem, especially at the time, and this is before Thomas Curry and, and Robbins, and we're even known that they were coming. Like we, we decided to start the divestiture process before we even knew this was a Diane Green era. But like we saw that we were disproportionately important to Google. Google's small ecosystem, high barriers to entry. Most people couldn't figure it out and because their partner programs were like convoluted. Still is hard. But on the Microsoft side, we knew that even though we were like an award-winning and celebrated partner, we were like 80 people, 25 million in revenue or something like that. We were never going to be like critical to Microsoft, I felt. We were regularly invited to much larger customer engagements by Google. And for the very big strategic ones on the Microsoft side, it was like the common set of publicly traded companies who'd get, you know, all the great, great, great work. And we do quite well in the mid-market, et cetera, et cetera. Well, frankly, we did look at raising capital a couple of times in the 2010s, especially then. I think it's gotten a little better now. Like no private equity firm could figure out what we were. They especially didn't know how to value the Google business. Like they had no, there's no comps. There was no... The model was not well understood. People were like, is Google still like, is Google going to be in this business? Like there was a lot of doubt. There's all these things compounding. We have the opportunity if we pounce now to truly become the, like what worldwide technology did with Cisco or Presidio did with Cisco back in the days is go all in really early. We could make the biggest and best of its kind. We didn't have that opportunity on the Microsoft side. So, and we knew getting a Microsoft deal done would be actually pretty straightforward. Like the comps are well understood, and there's no doubt about enterprise value. They've actually increased significantly. It all has for our space, but that was a relatively easy deal to get done. And three months before the deal was going to close, Thomas Kurian's coming, Rob Enzo's coming, all this, like, holy shit, like this is, we couldn't have predicted the level of investment Sundar and company were about to make in going really big on cloud. So we got really lucky with that decision. But it was an opportunity to be a little bit also counter trend. Most of our competitors, Rackspace, CloudReach, Doit, and all these folks, they were either completely exiting the game and selling themselves, or they were going multi-cloud. Oh, customers are multi-cloud. We must be multi-cloud too. And we're going to go the exact opposite direction of going all in with a number three player, seemingly high risk. But I felt really a high degree of conviction in the technology and our disproportionate role in the ecosystem, but really the technology. And here's what we saw. For those 10 years, we're running both. Anybody that kind of went cloud on the Microsoft side, for the most part, were the exact same company before and after. They went from like Exchange on-premise to 365, but used it exactly like they were using email. I was on-premise with attachments and everything. And they would do Azure, you know, we do Azure work and it'd be like lift and shift. Like It'd be like a data center migration. It'd be the exact same company that they were before. Every customer that we deployed on Google completely changed. Like their culture shifted, their, the way they collaborated was different. They had to learn different technology forcibly. They had to learn like, 
I mean, Google wrote the book on literally open source Kubernetes as a construct, that amazing products like BigQuery. So it's like people would, would change, companies would change in those projects and they would stay generally the same on the Microsoft project. So that was like, this is transformational. This work is more fun. It's more rewarding, higher risk, higher reward from the perspective of the customer. But we were not, we were up to that challenge of like doing the kind of pre-sales work that I was describing. We had Bob Evans on, you know, Bob Evans from Cloudworks, right? He's chronicling this amazing transformation from the success. He always has that whiteboard. He's got that whiteboard. He's he's great. But we talked about Deutsche Bank as an example. This whole transformation, right? The unrecognizable businesses becoming or shifting to technology organizations and Deutsche Bank's commitment to not being a brick and mortars banking. Like a 200 year old bank is choosing Google. That was not happening three years ago. So you get the vision and then now, okay, now what's next, right? I talk about maniacal focus. Like you had a pretty clear, like you took this business and propelled it exponentially. So what was that maniacal focus like? What did you have to think about and do differently now? You've made this huge, it's got to be a little scary, right? It's like diving in deep end of the pool. Like maybe you could rely on one business more than the other, but now I'm all in on Google. What does that focus look like? So we had to, first of all, we can get a lot more opinionated publicly. So the podcast came out, we started publishing, like we had this, like we tell, we probably release a customer story a week now of some kind. Like we couldn't really do that before as liberally. So we got very opinionated. We're a little bit like, oh, the, the Mavericks, right? They're like, they're talking about Google and it's all they talk about. But it became critical, Vince, to, to understand like two and a half years ago, most of our business was maps and workspace, but we knew the biggest opportunity, the biggest TAM, the most important thing to figure out was, of course, GCP vis-a-vis AWS and Azure. That's the biggest TAM by far. And this is when I talk about reinventing the business. And we've done it many, many, many times in our period. But that was the most critical pivot ever that if it was an existential moment. If we, had, if we did not figure this out, we could never be a top partner. We could never keep growing. We'd be relegated to and this is very common by your vendor partners, by the way. Like if you're fortunate enough to be great at one thing, they're going to absolutely believe that's all you can do. And they're going to tell you over and over again, no, I don't think you can figure this out. Like, I don't think you can figure that out. You're good at this. Just stay in your lane. We're going to get some other partners for this. We've heard that 50 times in the last 21 years and mostly proved them wrong. But we knew because of being close to our customers and close to Google, like we had to figure out GCP. And this is another thing that I think a lot of our peer group in our ecosystem, again, many of them who launched with Google in 2007 are just not around anymore, right? They've either kind of fallen off or they stagnated or they sold themselves or whatever. The most consistent mistake I've seen my then peers and literally equals in headcount and revenue 2007 were not equals anymore is they failed to make not only the tough choices, but even most importantly, the really important expensive hires. <laughs> like our CTO, who wouldn't have come if we still had a Microsoft business, by the way, I had to go find the best CTO on the planet in that thing we're trying to transform into. In that world, as you all know, engineering credibility is so critical, not only as a capability, I'll tell you, before Miles came on board, he built the SA team at Google for you know, a 75% global team. And it was perfect because he, he hated managing people. So like a perfect job for him. He didn't have to manage people. But he did that at, at Amazon the four or five years prior. Was speaking at Next, like just, just sort of a unicorn. At the time, 
he came on and right around the time I brought in an amazing COO and an awesome CLO and all these other folks, that critical hire, when he came on board, we were doing about, we were involved in like 14 relatively small GCP projects and 12 of them were failing. <laughs> like they were red. Customer hates you. It wasn't only us. I think Google was still failing a lot and other uh, partners, but that was unusual for us. We had like literally 100% success rate in Maps and Workspace and now we're failing 12 of the 14 holy shit, like we're going to get blacklisted. <laughs> we're dead, right? What that created is not only the immediate engineering and architectural credibility with customers, but even more importantly, and this is the part people miss, oh, I don't want to pay for this person. They're so expensive. It's like the type of people that now want to come to SADA just to be in Miles' orbit is crazy. We can't even get people to want to join regardless of what we paid them unless we had someone like Miles that brought that immediate tons of experience, immense credibility, this crazy charm about him. And he was like a, the flame and all the other best engineers in the world were like the muffs. And they just couldn't like resist wanting to be in his orbit. We could not, especially now, it's gotten worse. Hiring engineers has gotten even harder, but they don't just do it for the money. Yes, you have to pay well, but they just want to learn. They want to be around people that can inspire them, that they, it could make them better engineers. And Miles was exactly that, that person. And we've done that in other positions. But a lot of partners, when they get successful at something, they're like, oh, I don't want to, like, I'm going to go buy, you know, boats and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to hire Miles Ward. Like, that was a pivotal decision. So you went from red to green in all those accounts, obviously applied a lot of engineering focus to get there. I'm assuming a lot of candid conversations. That also ties into the maniacal focus, right? Driving those results. Like we have to make customers green in those projects. And we have like live data now. We do, we NPS the shit out of everything at our company, including not just enterprise support, but every project delivery kind of gets surveyed. And we were huge believers in that promoter score. They are almost all, and there's many, many, there's way more than, you know, 14, and they're way bigger and more complex. And this is another thing, talk about investment and growth mindset. We might not be green on profitability, but we're green on CSAT. <laughs> we don't have to make money on every project. We're totally cool with that. So I want to shift gears a little bit here on, we get green. Now we got to, still we got to deliver results, right? You're investing in a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. That means I got to invest in driving a lot of sales and delivering mm -hmm. results is fundamental to success. You've done some things here that I think are unique. We've talked about partner to partner all the time. You came to the table and fundamentally shifted. I'll say it shifted because you're an MSP or mm -hmm. re you're a reseller, deliver mm -hmm. services, you do all these things. And then you decided to embrace ISVs that had built solutions maybe on other cloud platforms and said, if you'll come build with us or come along with us, we've got great selling organization, We've got customer intimacy. We've got enterprise experience and cred. We can go help you be successful too. So talk about that because I think that was unique in this industry. So if you think about like Microsoft Days, IP Cosell, yeah, that was the fundamental idea was and continues to be both Amazon, Microsoft, Google. Our biggest vertical is tech companies, essentially, digital natives and other software companies. And I think this is where, of course, Microsoft continues to spend tons of resources getting software companies to develop on Azure. Amazon has similar ambitions. Why? Because like those, those kind of customers consume a lot of cloud resources and they tend to grow and are growing right now, probably overperforming every other segment. And so 
Google started to communicate in this way, I think starting with TK, like he put the Blunks of the world and the MongoDBs of the world and these other sort of platforms of the world, like front and center into Google strategy to say that, look, we are not going to compete with every software company in the world. We want every software company in the world, SAP, of course, to build on these Legos. And Google Cloud was a Lego. So they started kind of doing some hiring around like ISV specialists and stuff like that that worked in cloud. And we kind of saw what they were doing and we're like, actually, we could do this better. Not as a replacement for what every ISV would get as a benefit of running on GCP, but as a much more high velocity, hands-on set of resources. And it was also very interesting, like our customers in those pursuits who were ISVs we're like, yeah, 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 of course, it's the best technology, like, duh, like, yes, of course, you're going to provide us the best possible commercials and the great support. And of course, can you help me grow my company? <laughs> like, that's what the CEOs of Haiku and Packet Fabric and Virtue and Quantumetric and MariaDB and countless others that we have now were asking us and we're like, you know who we do that for? We do that for Google pretty well. So what if we created a specialized focus team? We hired a head of alliances from AODOCS, another ISV, Nikki Harley. Now she's built this team that basically gets engaged in every pursuit such that we're not just doing a GCP deal with those ISVs to be their partner and their contract holder for their consumption. They get a alliance services agreement, which says SADA will additionally do these things. You get a dedicated alliance manager, you get this dedicated inside sellers, you get to be on the podcast and we're going to do customer stories with you and we're going to do webinars with you and we're going to drive this much pipeline for you and, and all of that stuff, right? I love multi-way wins. I think as long as you can design a, a business such that you can't win unless everybody wins or in order for you to win, they must win too. This added a whole different dimension of winning. Like, why do I want to promote the business of my ISVs? Well, because they run on GCP with me. As they get bigger, their consumption goes up, which is great because then more revenue, right? Or more consumption, more revenue. So it became worth it to be able to build in these additional things, which we generally don't charge for. It's actually paid for in the economics of the commitment itself. We literally partner with our ISVs to help grow their businesses. And this would be impossible in the older paradigm of the enterprise software model. It's only possible, like Microsoft has CSP now, because we can sell the consumption to our customers and then participate in that by virtue of helping them grow their business. And, and Super sell unique. the consumption to the ISV and take the funds or the revenue incentives that come from that and double down to help the ISV partner. What a brilliant strategy. Again, ties into agility. And there's other nuances, by the way. Uh, Azure has a marketplace. Google has a marketplace. Amazon has a marketplace. And a lot of these ISVs, if they get big enough, they get to be also listed like in the GCP console as a add-on, right? That actually counts towards, like if, if a customer buys GCP and Quantumetric and MariaDB and Virtue, like all that counts towards their consumption of GCP. It's like a, a beautiful synergistic structure that to Google's credit, they set up very, very well. And it's just a completely different world. Like MSPs were not doing this kind of stuff at all a year ago, I would say. And now, of course, there's some copycat programs. I still think we'll have the best program on the planet, but I think that's flattery. We've been given the high sign. 
five-minute warning a couple minutes ago. But I just want to ask you one more question, and then hopefully we can take some questions from the audience. About marketplaces, you brought up marketplaces. Yeah. And I think fundamentally, this is going to be a key, I think it's a, it's a seminal point, in fact, in terms of where we're going to go in terms of an industry, because the, the digitization of consumerization of purchasing, where do you see marketplaces and how are you thinking about marketplaces? I think it's a very, very savvy strategy by Google and others. Again, it's sort of driving. Google wants to promote these ISVs for the same reason we do. The more MariaDB is sold in the world, the more GCP is consumed. It's a very synergistic, virtuous cycle. So I think they, it plays a very important role. I think the economics of that nuance are still being debated. I, Microsoft put a lot of pressure on, on Google. It's almost like the Apple store, right? Like Microsoft said, we're not charging 20% on our store. We're charging three. And then Google had to respond and saying, we'll also do three. So it's like an interesting, it's just brave new world type of stuff, which I love because when there's this sort of Wild West stuff, we get to be creative. But I think, of course, it's very, very important. Yeah. Always a delightful conversation. We will have you back again. That went so fast. It did go fast. I have some other questions, but we'll save it for our next episode together. And I know there's some folks who have some questions here in the audience. What's up, Sam? So for those who can't hear, the question was, you're hiring a lot of very expensive talent. I guess that's all well and good, but there's a lot of less experienced talent, younger talent, talent that's able to work from home. What are your thoughts on, on that talent? I think the current environment has made it, well, it's proven that people can be productive remotely. And I think just in the last 12, 12 to 18 months, we we were like in two Canadian provinces and 13 states where we had employees. Now we're in four provinces and 39 states where we have employees and two countries. So I think balancing best shoring, by the way, Canada is an incredible market for talent and the US dollar versus the Canada sort of arbitrage is very, very helpful for us here. But you don't need like half a million dollar people for every role, but you need them, sometimes more, you need them for like the head of my essay organization needs to be that kind of person. Because then they can attract all the other people. Then who can train and nurture and motivate and inspire the others who are like coming in from all sort of levels. And by the way, I think we've launched a SADA U program, like training programs for people from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of schools or not schools, which is its own effort. You have to hire at all levels. There's just not enough engineers in the world. And if you don't take diversity, equity, inclusion seriously, I mean, that's a huge miss. Like, Half the population is women. So you're like, you're not going to have an environment that's comfortable for women. It's insane, right? It doesn't make sense. And so you have to do not just every underrepresented group has to feel comfortable working at your company and, and feel welcome and included. And that's a very deliberate thing that we work on. I got the best email from a customer and unexpected email, but a great email from a New England customer. It was like, the CTO was like, Tony, and the title was like, Sada Diversity. I just met the team that's deploying me right now. Holy cow. How do you have such a diverse team? I was like, took a picture, sent it to my executive team. I was like, I love getting those emails. We have one question in the back, I think, John. I think that, of course, more and more things will be automated over time. Automation anywhere is a customer of ours, by the way. RPA, big up to RPA. But ML, AI, that stuff's going to get easier. But I think what you cannot automate is, so far, is I think like the commitment to understanding a, a business's objectives and aligning and driving a strategy in your sales pursuits and your delivery pursuits at meeting those objectives, that still tends to be a very hands-on, very deep, very manual, mechanical process. I mean, yes, I can run tools to like scan the data center and it can spit out something that says, this is what it'll take to migrate to, there's like 100 tools for that, but that's not going to create the kind of 
bespoke outcomes that we often need to achieve. And at the same time, like I know that I'll never have more engineers than the GSIs. There's certain things that we're just not going to do. We're going to do the very, very hard initial landing zones for our customers. We're going to do the very, very hard initial security posture for our customers in GCP. Like we're going to be very, very focused on that. So there's, there's areas that we're just not going to compete in. And I think our model is always going to be like that, but I can't predict what five years from now will require of us. And I think that having that growth mindset is, is, is critical because like you can never rest on yesterday's success or yesterday's strategy. But if you got to listen to your customers, stay close. They'll tell you implicitly or explicitly. They'll tell you what you need to become. We have one question. I don't claim that it's a single cloud world, nor that any customer of a certain size will be comfortable with a single cloud strategy at all. I think that most customers will be multi-cloud and a lot of customers in the enterprise will in fact be hybrid. I actually really, really have a deep appreciation for Google's vision of that world, which is led by standards-based approach around containerization and Kubernetes and Anthos, right? Like, and we're in several projects where other SIs are doing other parts of the work. And we get asked all the time, well, can you do the Amazon part? We're like, no, like get your Amazon folks to do that. We'll partner with them. Oh, can you do this? We're like, can you migrate my SAP workloads? I'm like, no, we have a partner for that. We try to stay in our lane and make sure that foundation is really, really strong. And we're doing great Anthos projects in very, very cool places right now that welcome other clouds to be involved because I think that's, to your point, that's what customers expect. It'll be a multi-cloud role for sure. Well, hopefully it won't be four more years before we get up here on stage again. No, look, look in person. It's happening. I love it. Thank you all. Thank you all. Appreciate it. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page, or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzion. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.